Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together, and we're way more thankful for that than we've ever been. And we're super thankful for the goodness you've given us, Lord, that you have provided for us in, in, in amazing ways. I mean, even being in this room right now, with this air conditioning in a place that's comfortable, to be able to hear your word is a great blessing. We don't take it for granted, Lord. We thank you for it. We pray for Lorian and the situation that her city's in right now. Lord, we pray that you would provide water to that city. We're thankful for the gospel opportunities she's had just even this week. We pray you bless those. Um, we're so thankful for her attitude that even in adversity that she sees it as an opportunity to declare your goodness and your glory as well. And so we're thankful for that. We pray, Lord, that you would open our ears and hearts for your word this morning. We pray that we would lift Christ on high and that we'd leave here with our spirits buoyant because of your Holy Spirit coming within us to strengthen us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a relationship series, and we're looking at relationships because we're hoping that this would be a season of reunions. We're calling the series Reunited in Hope. It turned out when we did the series in Exodus, a lot of the things that were in Exodus happened. And so I was thinking, well, let's do a series on reunions, and maybe this will happen as well. And so we're hoping this will be a season of reunions of friends and family and work and church. But we know that with our current situation, like I was just talking about, there's challenges to relationships. Relationships are harder to do now. It takes more effort. It takes more wisdom. It takes more desire. And this morning, we're going to look at our relationships at work. And you might think that's a weird thing. You might expect marriage and parenting, and we're going to get to all that. But we're also going to talk about work. And the reason for that is, is that our work is a rich area of relationships, isn't it? It's an area where we have lots of relationships. We're with people at work, sometimes more waking hours than we're anywhere else. And so we want to look at this because these are relationships that God wants to redeem for his glory. And so this morning, we're going to look at what the Bible says about work. And we could do a whole series on this because the Bible has a ton to say about work. Some of you guys have been in church a long time, probably have never heard a sermon on work, which is unfortunate because the Bible is full of information about your work and, and helpful teaching on it. In Reformed theology, we look at the whole story of the universe in four acts, like a play. And, and those four acts are creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's how we look at the entire history of, and we have a picture of it, but we have an entire history of the universe is creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration of all things. And so we're going to look at that this morning with your work. We're going to see that your work was created by God as a gift, okay? Creation, your work is a gift. Fall, your work is cursed. Redemption, Jesus' work redeems your work, and then restoration, your work's going to be perfected. And so that's the basic outline for this morning. We're going to follow through on that. So your work is a gift. When we look at Genesis 1, we see God himself working. He's working and creating over six days a beautiful universe uh, and all the things in them. And he's like an artist in a studio. And so he'll make something, then he'll look at it, and he'll go, oh, it's good. And then you'll make another thing and say, it's good. And oh, look at this is good. And he's enjoying every day the things that he makes. The thing that he liked the most, though, is the people. On the day he made the people, he said that they're very good. And so God made us to enjoy his work, but God also made us to be able to work also and enjoy our own work. 
He made us to be those who would imitate him in making things and enjoying that work. God gave us work as a gift. If you look at Genesis 2.15, you can see that it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so work is a good gift of God. Even before the fall, people were working, were designed for that. Every single one of us is designed to, ha- to do meaningful work, whether that work is at home or that work is out in the workplace. When I talk about work this morning, I mean everything that isn't either leisure or Sabbath. Okay, so you got Sabbath, your rest time, you got your leisure, everything else, work. Work whether it's around the house or work whether it's taking care of children or work out in the the workplace. And this biblical theology of work that work is a good gift from God is totally different than what the Greeks thought in Jesus' time. The Greeks of Jesus' time saw work as a curse. In fact, Aristotle said that, that unemployment, not having to work, was a primary qualification for living the worthy life. Okay, so maybe more people are doing that now. They're living the worthy life, more unemployment. But he thought that those who didn't work were the ones that truly were living life, right? And that's true of the Greeks. The ancient Greeks said that if a person did have to work, at least they should do intellectual work because physical work was demeaning. People shouldn't have to do physical work. It was something that was beneath them. But what's really cool, if you take a look at Genesis 2, is that you see God himself doing physical work in the beginning. Take a look at Genesis 2.8. It says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he formed the, t- took the man that he had formed, and he put him there. So he, he forms uh, the man out of dust of the ground, do- doing physical work. He creates a garden. And so it's a shocking start compared to the way the Greeks thought about work, that God himself did work and enjoyed working. And so we see in the Old Testament, we see God's a gardener. And then in the New Testament, what does God come as? A carpenter, right? God, our God is a God who works. He, he's both a, a gardener in the Old Testament and a carpenter in the New Testament. If you guys think about what a statement of the dignity of work that is, that God, when he came as a man, worked as a carpenter for most of his life, that's an amazing statement about the dignity of physical labor, isn't it? That God didn't think it was a waste of time to spend 90% of his life on earth working a regular physical job. The word for carpenter is uh, tecton, and it just means laborer. So this wasn't necessarily he's making like fancy wooden figurines for the wealthy or something. This guy was doing hard manual labor. This is God himself. So back to Genesis. In the beginning, we see God himself happily working. And then he creates human beings and he gives them work. And he gives them two types of work. He gives them physical work. Uh, Adam's told to work the garden, and he gives them intellectual work. He has them name the animals. So two types of work that we see there before the fall. And the big picture of what God's doing when he gives them this work, you can see in Genesis 1.28. Take a look at it. God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Theologians call this the cultural mandate that we're to subdue and have dominion over this earth to create God-honoring culture that would bless people and be a glory to God. Did you realize that your ordinary work has that purpose? That's what what God is is doing in giving us this work. And and our interaction with this creation is not that we're supposed to be kind of hyper-environmentalists, like a guard that guards a museum. Don't touch any of the paintings. He doesn't call us to do that, but he also doesn't call us to, like, destroy and vandalize it, right? He calls us to cultivate it. In the beginning, you see there that Adam is given a garden. 
And so when we think of our interaction with this world, it's like a garden. And a garden isn't a place that you don't touch and you don't develop, right? But it also isn't a place you pave over, right? You, you cultivate. You might pave a path through it, right? You might put a wall around it. What you're doing is you're cultivating what God has given you. You're stewarding it to make it maximally beneficial for other humans and a glory to God. So your work is a gift, and I think that's really important because your work doesn't always feel like a gift. It's really important for you to realize your work is a gift from God. It's something that he himself partook in, and it's something that he's made you to image him in. You might say, well, clearly something went wrong because I'm dreading tomorrow morning, okay? Clearly something went wrong, and something did go wrong. Something went wrong in the world. Something went wrong in work. Something went wrong in us. And it's called the fall. So you got creation, got your work is a gift. Second, your work is cursed. That might sound dramatic, but it's not. Look at Genesis 3. The first human beings, they sin against God. They rebel against this generous God. And we have all fallen suit in that. And so God cursed work. Take a look at Genesis 3.17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are of dust, and to dust you should return. That feels a little more familiar to you, doesn't it? When you think about your work, you know, thorns, thistles, sweat, dying, dust. That feels like real life, right? Because that's the real situation. And this has tons of explanatory power, guys. I think we all need to learn to tell this story because this story makes a lot of sense. And you know what? Jesus makes a lot of sense in this story. What doesn't make sense is when we try to bring Jesus into somebody else's story. They have a story of this world and all this stuff, and then we just pop Jesus in. He seems like a character that doesn't belong there. Like, I don't know, like Dumbledore pops right into Star Wars, and you're like, what's he doing here? We need to learn to tell the story of reality. This is what's really happening in the world. And when we tell this story faithfully, then they can understand where Jesus fits into the story, because he does fit this, he fits this reality, because he's the creator, and yet we need to learn to tell the story, and this story has tons of explanatory power. Do you guys find it hard to work and love people in your workplace? No? Okay. Maybe, sometimes? Okay. Okay, I think you do, and it's because your work's cursed, okay? Do you always envision being able to do more at your work than you can actually do? Okay, that's because your work's cursed, do you find that when you try to do home improvement projects you saw on TV that they don't turn out the way the TV show was? That's because your work is cursed, okay? You guys get this. If we believe in Genesis 3, guys, we should expect work to be hard. We should expect it to be hard. And our culture is really funny on this. You know, all these memes about career and stuff like that, that if you find the right thing, like, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Okay, if you believe that, you're going to be horribly disappointed with life, okay? Because that, guys, is straight-up heresy. It's straight-up heresy. Read Genesis 3. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, if you believe that, then when you have a good day, you're like, wow, so unexpected, so wonderful. You know, but if you live by the, the meme of you'll never work a day in your life, you're going to be disappointed. And not only is it a heresy to believe that, but it's, it's the prescription for living a very unstable and immature life. And we all have either been this person or know this person that, you know, goes, oh, this job, it's so, oh, it's so much work. I'm going to do this one. And then you, you go, oh, it's so much better. A few weeks in, you're like, this is work too. You know, and you're like, get rid of that job. You go to the next work, you're like, 
this one's work, you know? You know, if we believe Genesis 3, we're going to realize what Tim Keller says. He says this, the fall means that we should expect to be regularly frustrated in our work, even though we may be in exactly the right vocation. Let me read that again. The fall means we should expect to be regularly frustrated in our work, even though we may be in exactly the right vocation. You guys might think, well, you know, it's easy for you to talk about that. You have a dream job. You're a veterinarian. You know, those of you guys who know I'm a veterinarian, people like, often are like, oh, no, you must, you must fit that. Like, every day must be magical. You must love it. You must never work a day in your life. Adam has jacked me up too, like the rest of you, okay? Psychologically, the work is very stressful sometimes. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's horrible. Keeps you up at night. Physically, I've blown out my disc in my back. I tore my shoulder. I've been kicked, bit, body slammed, baked in the sun. And that was only on Friday, okay? (laughs) Come home filthy every day. And remember, guys, my job requires a glove for a reason, and the glove goes all the way up my shoulder. I'm going to let it settle. You guys there? Horse vet. Now is it settling? Okay, we'll move on. That kind of stuff can be distracting. So work is hard. But guys, work is hard. It's even harder if you're trying to get something from your work that only God can give. And I think that's the part we can fix, right? Work is hard, but it's harder when you expect work to give you something only God can give. What kind of things? Work cannot give you significance. Work cannot make sure that your life is worth living. Can't do that. Work cannot give you security. Work cannot make sure that your future will be happy. Can't give you security. Work cannot give you approval. It cannot tell you that you measure up. If you use it for any of those things, you're actually making work harder on yourself because you're expecting that significance and security and approval from something that can't give it to you. Only God can give that to you. And that's, guys, the kind of the work under the work. That's the extra layer of hardness of our work beyond just the norm that we all have to deal with. And, guys, it's amazing how much work brings out the sin and the idols in our lives. How many of you guys have had them exposed at work? You know, you see your greed. You see your anger. You see your envy. You see how judgmental you are. You see how fearful you are. You see how dishonest you can be. That all happens at work, right? It shows us as a special way of showing us that we're not really worshiping God. We're worshiping ourselves. And we're seeking things for ourselves that can only, we can only get from God. And so your work is a gift. Your work is cursed. We make it worse by looking for things in it that only God can give us. And then thirdly, Jesus' work redeems our work. So enter Jesus into this wonderful situation. And you know where Jesus shows up? At work. It's really strange. When God comes himself, he comes as a lowly worker. You guys are all used to the story, so you think, oh yeah, of course. That's, not, that's a weird story. It's weird that God would come and work for 90% of his life in obscurity, in a job that's not flashy, in a job that's difficult, like I said, the Greek word is tekton. It means simple labor. We've glamorized and thought he's making all these cool things. Like, he might have been just framing. He might have even been working with stone. I mean, this guy is working hard. And he's sinlessly serving others in all of his frustrating labors. Think of another reason to worship Jesus. Worship him that he could work his whole life sinlessly loving others in frustrating labor. And God did this for us. He became this lowly worker. And then God did a work that we can never do for ourselves. So the ultimate work he came to do was he came to bear our sin. 
came to bear our sin on the cross. It was, a, it was a labor to carry our sin on the cross, die for our sins, something we couldn't do for ourselves. And so this carpenter God is nailed to wood, right? This, this God who, who worked as a carpenter, he's nailed actually on the wood that he created, because remember, Jesus is the creator of everything too. He's nailed on the wood he created. He is nailed to the wood he worked with all of his life. The materials of his labor became the canvas of his agony when he did this greatest work for us. Jesus died for our sins. And then he rises again, and it's really cool the way he rises because he dies, he rises again, he's buried in a garden tomb. Remember that? He's buried in a garden tomb that can't hold him. And do you remember who Mary thought he was when he was resurrected? Mary was confused about who he was. Who did she think he was? The gardener. And she was not wrong. You know, he was the gardener of Genesis 2. He was the one that came to give us the garden back. Isn't that amazing? Carpenter and gardener. Jesus died and rose again to remove the great burden of our sin that carries us. And that burden of sin, which is way more than the burden of our work, that burden of sin would have dragged us down into eternal misery and hell forever. But Jesus has taken it off of us. And I want to ask you this morning, have you asked him to take it off of you? It's very simple, really. It's very simple. You would call out to Jesus and just tell him, I'm a sinner and I want to be saved and I want that work that you did on the cross to be applied to me. I want forgiveness. I want your life to live within me. I want my sin forgiven and I also want you to make me new. And what's really cool about our work is that Jesus does both. He takes away this, our sin, but then he also, guys, removes that work under the work. He puts work in its place which is really cool. The secondary benefit of the cross is that we work now no longer looking for significance and security and approval in our work because we have it in Jesus. Jesus removes that work under the work. That work of trying to justify your existence. You know, a lot of people use their career to justify their existence. We're asking a little much, right? But that's something that Jesus does. He justifies us. He makes us right before God. And then we can work in a way that we're actually working to worship him and not worshiping ourselves. Colossians 3.23 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then listen to this. This is your work, right? This is, you're on your way to work or you're working at home or whatever the work you're doing. It says this, you are serving the Lord Christ. You're not serving the false gods of security and approval and and success and all these things. You're serving Christ. And I'll tell you what, that is a whole lightning of the load. Jesus said, all you are heavy laden and burdened, come to me, right? He will lighten that load because we're serving him. There's a really cool example of this in an old movie. How many of you guys seen the old movie uh, Chariots of Fire? Very few Chariots of Fire watchers. Okay, we're about to put on the screen Chariots of Fire. No, we don't have time for that. Um, we don't have cool video clips. We could, but we didn't. There's a cool example of this in that old movie, Chariots of Fire, and it's based on a true story of two Olympians, runners, in, in 1924 in the Paris Olympics. And so there's Eric Liddell, he's a Christian, and then there's Harold Abrams, who's not. And at one point, Abrams, the non-Christian, he explains how he thinks about his running, his work. This is what he thinks. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. How many of you guys work like that? (laughs) 
I've got this day to justify my existence. This is not what work is meant to be. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's the work under the work. That's looking for your significance and security and approval in your work. Eric Liddell, Christian, went on to be a missionary later. He has a totally different experience with his work. This is what he says to his sister. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. How's that? That chokes me up for some reason. I just, you know, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. How about that for your work? You know, those of you who are cops, God's made me strong and, and quick and mentally and physically. And when I enforce the law, I feel it's pleasure. Isn't that cool? Or a teacher, you know? God's given me insights into certain things, and when I teach, I feel it's pleasure. It's just such a different way to look at life, guys. It's not to justify your existence. It's God gave me these gifts, and when I run, I feel it's pleasure. And when you get that, guys, down deep in your soul, then you're ready to receive what work is really for. <laughs> you take away that as why you're doing work, and now you can receive what work's really for. And I want to give you three things that work is for, and they start with C, and I, there's probably more. This is my alliteration. Uh, competency, culture shaping, and conversation. I'm going to go through these really quick because I think this might be too long. Competency. Well, one of the main things you're there to do at work is to be competent. And you might think... I thought as a pastor you'd say evangelism. Did you guys think I would first say evangelism? Anyone? Let me ask you this. This is why I think that competency is the main reason you're there. You're mainly there to do a good job for them, and I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. What do you guys want most from a Christian airline pilot? Evangelism? Good character? You want them to land the plane, okay? So I think that shows you that competency is important. Guys, your work is your most consistent opportunity to love and serve your neighbor, which is the second greatest commandment. Second greatest commandment is love and serve your neighbor as yourself. And your work is your most consistent opportunity to do that, and you do that through competency. You do that through working on your skills better and better. And I know as I say competency, some of you guys feel terrible about your work, feel incompetent. That's why we're working on it. We're working on it because it's an act of love, right? When Martin Luther, the reformer, when he was reflecting on Psalm 145, it, Psalm 145 says this, When you open your hand, God, you satisfy the hungry and thirsty of every living thing. And then Martin Luther thought, well, how does God feed everyone? Well, it turns out that he feeds all of us through farmers and bakers and truck drivers and shopkeepers and people stocking shelves and cashiers, right, through countless matrix of work. That's how God feeds us. He feeds us through essential workers. You all essential workers, okay? Your work provides goods and services that other people can't do for themselves. I mean, I use all kinds of things I can't make for myself. I, I use all kinds of things I can't fix myself, right? And so I rely on other people. Some people are like, oh, I'm going to live off the grid. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to farm and I'm going to get a composting toilet and use my own manure to like, you know, give nutrients to the tomatoes and I'm going to put up solar panels. I'm not going to need anyone. I'm like, cool. Where'd you get the solar panels? Right? We're all relying on each other for everything, for all kinds of things. And we can't get away with not being dependent on one another. So your work, guys, is the main way you love and serve your neighbor every day. You might think, well, how can that be if they pay for it? And I've wrestled with this because my services are expensive. And so, you know, you think to yourself, you know, how can this be an act of love if they're paying? Let me ask you this. Do any of you guys have like a plumber or an electrician or a dentist or a mechanic that you really trust? Some of you go like, oh, I finally found the guy. 
I finally found that right person. And you know, when I, when I ask, you know, you put out something out on social media or whatever, say, hey, does anybody know a good plumber? If somebody does, they go crazy. They're like, oh, you got to call this guy, right? To love and serve our neighbors is to be that person, right? Because when you find that person, you're happy to pay him whatever because you know they're honest, you know it's fair, you know they do a great job. What are they doing? They're loving you. They're loving you, and so you're happy to pay for it. That's how to love and serve your neighbor is by being that person. And so that's why we work on our competency at work is because it's our way to better love and serve one another. And I got to experience some of you guys' work recently. Elisa, we went and looked at some properties to be a, a long-term place for us so we're not like nomads that go from place to place. It's like, oh, there's Cove Grace. Oh, there they go over there, you know. So we could live somewhere long-term, right? And it was amazing to see her in element. She's all like laser, you know, to measure things. And she's like rattling off all this stuff. And of course she does. Like this, she's been doing this forever, you know. But it was just amazing to see people in their own element, right? Um, I had another experience. I experienced it with Johnny, actually, a couple weeks ago. So I had my tailgate stolen, which seems like no big deal. It's a huge deal when you got a camera in it and all that stuff. So to replace the tailgate on my truck is like thousands of dollars. It's ridiculous. Or... You can find the guy and offer up this stole your tailgate and buy it back from him, like, and then create like a, an economy of tailgates. Okay, so those are your options. So I'm like, I'm like super bummed about this that I called Johnny and I don't even think, know if I was calling you for the insurance reason. I just wanted to call, but it was so cool because he made everything better. You know, he he like like uh, Samwise Gamgee said, he he made everything sad come untrue. And not only did he, like, fix it for me, because he's my insurance guy, by the way. Not only did he fix it for me, but you counseled me, too, which was, like, an added, I don't know if you do that for everyone, but, you know, and I talked to him later. I'm like, hey, you really helped me. And he's like, yeah, you were really messed up emotionally. I'm like, yeah, I really was. You know, I needed that guy, but I got to experience his work, which is cool, and that's a ministry. It's a ministry of competence. We also have a ministry of culture shaping. Some jobs, not all jobs, have an ability to actually change the work culture. Okay, so this would be things like if you work on a team, you're, you know, adding to that team and that team's culture. If, if you're in management, you know, you have an ability to kind of shape the culture there. If you're working at home with your children, you obviously have an ability to shape the culture there. Creatives, you know, people that make films or write books or things like that, have an ability to shape culture. Teachers have a massive ability to shape culture, right? And, and Jesus calls us to do this. If we look in, in Matthew, he says that we are to be salt and light in the earth, Right? And salt, in the old days, salt was used in ancient times to preserve meat. So the difference between roadkill and beef jerky is salt, among, you know, other things, the type of meat and things like that. But salt preserves, right? It preserves meat. We're called to be that in our workplace, to actually affect the culture of our workplace. And let me just give you a few questions you could ask about whether you're faithfully shaping the culture in your workplace. Because you're there, is your workplace a more positive culture? Philippians 2 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may shine as lights in a crooked and twisted generation, right? Is it a more positive culture because you're there? Or is it a more just culture? You know, you're there to be an instrument in that culture to make your workplace more just, to bring justice to it. For example, in Proverbs, it talks a lot about not um, taking advantage of the poor, and false weights and measures, and there were ways in which people that did business could take advantage of poor people. Are you making your workplace more just to, the, to those who are weaker? There's this guy, um, John Wanamaker, and he was a Christian businessman, and you know what he invented? The price tag. 
John Wanamaker was a Christian who invented the price tag in the early 20th century. And you may not realize this, but it, the price tag is a huge instrument of justice, right? Because when, before it was all haggling. And so there'd be certain guys, especially men, certainly men of power in the city, they could get the price they wanted. People that were weaker, you know, outsiders, uh, probably women, younger people, weren't able to negotiate the same level. He, come, he says, you know what, this is unjust. This is unjust in society. I'm going to put price tags on, everybody pays the same amount. And it spread, right, because people realized it was an important thing. Do you bring more justice to the culture of your workplace? Do you bring more graciousness to your workplace? I mean, Ephesians 4 says, to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave us. Is there more grace in your workplace because you're there than you're being salt? Is your culture of your workplace more humble because you're there? Yeah. Do you regularly admit your failures and your sins and ask for forgiveness? Because when I mention competence, you might get the idea that the way we're witnesses in culture is by always being right and doing the right thing. That's not the case, and it's not possible. We often are good witnesses to the gospel when we admit we're sinners and that we failed and that we want someone's forgiveness, especially people that aren't believers. To be able to say, I sinned, and then be like, whoa, 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 sin, that seems kind of strong. Nope, that's what it is. I sinned, I want your forgiveness. No, no, it's okay. No, I want you to forgive me because I sinned against you. And I want to know you forgive me. Paul said this, this is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Do people in your workplace believe that you believe that you're the worst of sinners there? Paul said that about himself. And then thirdly, third C, conversations. So as we're competent, as we're culture shaping, we'll have ability to have conversations. And what's really cool about this, guys, is that you guys are all a priesthood. First Peter says you're a priesthood of all believers. Before the Reformation, medieval times, it was thought there was the priests and then there were all the people whose work doesn't matter. After the Reformation, they recovered the biblical idea that we're all priests. And we're priests that are scattered throughout the whole community, which is super cool. And you might think that, you might have this idea that, like, God mainly uses professional ministers to accomplish his mission. But guys, God's track record says the exact opposite. Think of all the people that God has used to accomplish his purposes. Abraham, not a professional minister. Isaac, Jacob, Joshua. Joshua is a civil servant in Egypt. Deborah, civil servant in Israel, a judge. Daniel, civil servant in Babylon. Nehemiah, civil servant in Persia. Aquila and Priscilla, tent makers. Lydia, seller of purple. God has constantly used people in their ordinary workplace. You think about Peter and John and James and being taken away from fishing and go be fishers of men. God more often keeps the fishermen fishing and reaches out to fishermen. And I just love that we have this opportunity to be in the culture and have conversations, right? And those conversations might look like offering wise counsel when people want it. I think as they come to know you, they know that you have wisdom, and it comes from the scriptures. They're going to ask you for those things. People asking you for prayer, because I'm a veterinarian. A lot of my clients like want to talk to me about their health problems, and sometimes there's like super personal, and I'm like, whoa, 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 there's a reason I didn't go into human medicine, you know? Like, let's not do this. But I have an opportunity to pray for them, right? And you guys have opportunities to pray for people. People are very open to that often, and they share burdens, say, hey, can I pray for you right now? Pray with them opportunities to clarify the good news. You have all kinds of opportunities to clarify the gospel, and I love that like we have all people in every kind of strata of, of work in our, in our church scattered throughout to do this work. 
It's super awesome. It's a, it's a great opportunity. And what would be really cool is for you, those of you that are in the same field to maybe talk to each other and go like, hey, how do you do it at your workplace? Because there's a skill, right? Teachers have a certain way of being able to share the gospel with people. And police officers have a different way. And firemen have a different way. And, you know, different fields have different ways. And I think it'd be cool. Because listen, I'm going to list to you guys some of the occupations that are in, this, in our church. And this is fun because you might be like, oh, who's that one? And you could find out. Here we go. An accountant, an audio engineer and producer, a barista, a boiler operator, a braille transcriber, a cell tower tech, construction workers, a dental hygienist, a dietitian. Yes, they're in alphabetical order. <laughs> DMV agents, EMT. We have multiple engineers. We have a filmmaker, multiple firefighters, a graphic artist, a horseshoer, a hospice chaplain. We have multiple insurance agents internet service tech, we have an internal auditor, we have managers, we have a couple missionaries, we have nurses, we have a pilot, we have a PA, we have a pizza maker, which is Mason, we have police officers, multiple, we have a probations corrections officer, we have uh, professors, programmers, real estate agents, we've got a few of those, receptionists, salesmen, we have a service quality uh, assurance auditor, that's a long one, we have a speaker and author. We have a startup consultant. We have stay-at-home moms, students, teachers, a therapist, a train conductor. Did you guys know that? We have a train conductor. Figure out who he is. We have a UPS driver. We have multiple water district employees. That seems to be a growing field. And a welder and more. Guys, we have people everywhere, which is super cool. So I just want you to think with intentionality about the workplace you're in. Think about you're, you're an agent there. You're, you're one of our ministers there. Because people can ask, like, hey, do you guys have a ministry to first responders? Do you have a ministry to stay-at-home moms? And I'm like, yes. And you know what? We also have a ministry to train conductors, welders, writers, and filmmakers. And they're like, whoa, how do you do all that? It's you. It's you. You're like, oh, no. Like, you have the Holy Spirit. It's you. It's you. The ministry's everywhere. Lastly, last stage, and I'll be real quick, your work will be perfected. Restoration. Your work's going to be perfected. The story of work started in the garden, got redeemed in a garden tomb. It ends in a garden city. And if you look at Revelation 21 and 22, I won't read them right now. You can read them at home. That's our ultimate outcome is a world made new, a city, a garden city. Revelation 21, 24 says this, In its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. You go like, oh, what's that? It'll be a city where we're going to enjoy the best of all human culture. And here's the cool thing, and I don't want you guys to miss this. I know this has gone long. All of your deepest aspirations for your work will be fulfilled there. Isn't that cool? All of your deepest aspirations for your work will be realized there. Because you can look at work and go like, this is never done. I'm never able to finish. It's going to get completed there, okay? Let me, let me put it to you this way. Everything you've worked for will be brought into perfect reality. Do you work for justice at your work? Do you work for healing? It'll be a place of perfect justice and healing. Did you work to build here? Did you work to nurture? Did you work to clean? Did you work to serve? All those things would be perfectly fulfilled in this new world. Did you work to beautify? Did you work to teach? Did you work to protect? All that work will be perfectly accomplished in the world to come. Isn't that awesome? Guys, your work doesn't just burn up in the end. It's sad when I hear people say that. 
You know, oh, you know, what does it matter? All just burns up in the end. That's sad. That's not what God's about. If you read that passage, God is actually going to perfect all the labors that we've done, empowered by him. He's going to perfect them in the world to come. It will be made perfect in the eternal city. And then we're going to be given the gift of, like, satisfying work to do. We're not going to be bored on clouds playing harps. That would be, like, the worst eternity ever, right? How many of you guys are harpists? Okay, I was glad because that would be offensive right now. And the way you see them do it, it's like, it's pluck, pluck. I mean, it's like, if they're banjos maybe, but, but here, listen to this. This is what it sounds like in the world to come. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen ones shall long enjoy the work of their hands. That satisfaction you get from work that goes well. You're going to have that in the world to come. New, meaningful work, fruitful labor in a city that's centered around God, and we build a culture to bless one another, and we feel God's immense pleasure in it all. And we're able to see him and enjoy him and say, everything that we do, we're like, this is for you. This is what we're trying to do here. We're going to be able to do perfectly. We're going to be like, hey, this is for you. And he's going to like, I love it. Thank you. That's great. Join us there, guys. You could join us there. Jesus has paid our way. Receive the love of Jesus. These rough-handed, blue-collar, savior hands of Jesus have been pierced for your sins. He's risen in glory, and he's coming to make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... The beauty of what you've made in this creation, we are super sorry, beyond sorry, of what we have made it. And, but we're so thankful, Lord, that you have sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to take away all our sin, to make us right with you, to change us from the inside out, even now, and then to one day set all things right. And Lord, the more craziness we see in the world, We've been protected from it a lot until now. And we're still protected from a lot of it. But Lord, we, we do want you to come and make all things new. And we pray, Lord, that you'd start with us. Start with our hearts. Start with our lives. Help us to spread the good news of your son, Jesus. As your kingdom grows, that, that we see some of it now, of what we're going to see entirely in the future, Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Right before Jesus left his family of disciples and went into the world to do that greatest work, his death on the cross for us, he had a meal with them. And during the meal, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup of wine, which he had given thanks for, and said, Drink this. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for the sin of many. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. If you guys have received Jesus as the source of all your significance, security, and approval with God for your forgiveness, for your justification, and if your heart is to forsake all sin and follow him, that's your heart, not your perfection, but your heart, then we invite you to take it as well. Let's go ahead and take it. The bread. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you to preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Let's take the bread. Father, we're thankful for that body broken. You gave your, your son gave his own body 
Jesus, thank you for that, that you would give your own body for us. Help us to never think that there is something more that needs to be done than that to make us right with you. Now let's take the cup. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Let's take it together. Father, we thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the way that his blood has cleansed all sin and that there's no sin in this room that's stronger than his blood. Father, help us to never think that we have to somehow clean up our own sin. Help us to rely fully on the blood of Jesus. Help us to, with confidence, enter to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need because we know we're covered by the blood of your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, stay with us, be our companion in the way, kindle our heart and awaken our hope that we may know you as you're revealed in the scriptures and in the breaking of this bread. We pray grant this for the sake of your love and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.